Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. Okay. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. It is great. Um, um, I'm so glad to see everybody here. For those of you who don't know, my name is Roger, um, and uh, it is uh, just such an incredible celebratory moment that we get to be able to praise God because uh, it is uh, through his love and his affection that we are generous, and, and so I just celebrate um, everything that, that the Lord is doing through Inspire. Uh, I think this happened a couple years ago where uh, the church was doing in, like an all-church fast. You guys remember that? And, uh, and I don't know about you, but like when you're getting ready to fast, you know, like the night before, I go through and I'll like cook everything in the house. Like anything that's in the fridge, all the cupboards, it's all coming out. It's, we're cooking it all. We're eating it all because we're going through this fast and it's going to be a few weeks and I don't want to see nothing in my kitchen. And so we just, it's like a meal. I mean, we just lay it all out, you know, get it all done before. And anyway, so the next morning, you know, is the, the morning of the fast, right? So I get up and I get ready and what do I do? I make myself some breakfast and just as I put the food in my mouth, I realize, oh, supposed to be fasting. Am I going to do that? Yeah. And in that moment, you have to decide, okay, do you stop eating and like start over or do you be like, well, Jesus knows my heart and we can start tomorrow, right? Every person here has a different personality, and one of you will choose one of those situations. Anyway, and so we're in this fast. A friend was like, hey, let's get together. I want to just, you know, catch up and stuff. And so I was like, okay, great. And I'm like, well, you know, where do you want to go? And I was thinking maybe he'd say, like, Starbucks or Phil's Coffee or something like that. He's like, well, you know, I'm going to take you to Texas Roadhouse. And I was like, okay. And so, you know, we get there and stuff and, and you know, we're chatting up and, and, he, and he orders and, and, you know, the waiter's like, what would you like? I'm like, actually, you know what? I'm really good. I'm, I'm good with what I have. And my friend was like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm good, you know? And he goes, okay. And then, you know, we talk a few minutes and then here comes his food and he orders like this juicy steak, you know, those wonderful potatoes that come with it, right? I'm just like, and I'm looking at him and I'm trying not to like watch him eat this. You know what I mean? And at this time, like sweat is like, you know, coming from my brow and stuff. And he's like, bro, this is good. You sure you don't want some? And I'm like, no, no I'm good. Like, I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I'm not even hungry. Like, you know, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. And the whole time I'm like struggling. And I'm like, man, this is painful. This is painful. And you know, the part of fasting is to remind yourself of, of the Lord's suffering and, and to remind yourself of the cross. And I'm like, man, if this is this bad, can you imagine what the cross was like? And the reality is, is we can't. In fact, the song that we sung this morning was fitting when we said that we will never know how much it cost to see our sins upon the cross. Um, and this morning, that's actually what we're going to be talking about. So this is the last installment of a uh, series that we have been doing uh, called Deconstruction. And if you have missed any of this, please, I encourage you to go back to, you know, our podcast or, uh, or uh, YouTube page. So that way you can kind of see sort of where we have kind of led up to this moment and some of the various things that we have discussed. But the reality is, is that uh, what we're really looking at is for the, there are individuals who are deconstructing and, and there's a healthy deconstruction, right? Uh, and then there's individuals that are deconstructing in an unhealthy way. And what we mean by that is, is that they're looking at their set of beliefs and specifically Christian set of beliefs, and they're really trying to tease out uh, what, what their understanding of these things and, and do they really believe some of this and, and, they're, and they're pressing 
pressing questions on the gospel and, 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 and they're pressing questions to the Bible and, and that's great and they're, and they're pressing these questions um, and uh, through this, sometimes it's because of church hurt, sometimes it's because of toxic church leadership, um, sometimes it's because of, of uh, uh, people within maybe the church that, that doesn't really understand uh, or comprehend fully some of the doctrines that, that Christianity uh, really expresses or whatever the reason is, is that they're deconstructing and there's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul talks about and what we should do is when we deconstruct, we should also be reconstructing. We should be reconstructing. And so for those that are wrestling with belief, for those that uh, maybe you're even here presently, but your heart actually might have even checked out and you're not really sure if you actually believe um, in Christianity, in Jesus Christ, in the claims that are made. Um, we have tried to present various topics. And this morning, uh, that's exactly what we're going to do. So we're going to look at John chapter 18, verse, starting in verse 7. John chapter 18, starting in verse 7, and it says this, And again he asked them, uh, who is it you want? And so what happens is they have come to arrest Jesus. Um, and Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And so they have uh, Roman soldiers there. They have uh, the religious elite there. They said, we, are, we want Jesus. And verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink of the cup that the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and they bound him. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that this word that you have for us this morning, Lord God, that as uh, you give it and as we uh, eat of it, as we process it, as we uh, meditate on it, Heavenly Father, that through this, Lord God, that we will draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. and amen. This morning, we're looking at a few things, and we're going to ask a pressing question. Um, and, but before we get to that, I just kind of want to set up uh, sort of uh, some of the spaces in which uh, we are going so that way we can know kind of that we're talking and, and our language is sort of on the same playing field. But really, this morning, what we're looking at is Jesus, his death, the cross, him being sent him dying and answer, and sort of asking the question, well, doesn't that make God a cosmic child abuser? That's, that, that, that's sort of the question. But in order to answer that, we really have to understand what we mean by the cross and what Jesus Christ did in this theological term that's called atonement. Atonement. Atonement actually has its origin meaning from this Middle English word called at-one-ment, at-one-ment. Uh, and it indicates sort of a state of unity, right? A place of harmony. Um, the, the closest New Testament word for this is actually reconciliation, reconciliation. But, but the Greek and Hebrew word for the, for the actual word of atonement, however, is kapoor. Um, and so, you know, you might be familiar with like long, uh, Yom Kippur, right? The, the day of atonement. And, and that actually means to cleanse and to purify. So it has sort of these two meanings, to cleanse and to purify and to reconcile or bring unity. And so paradoxically, the, what it really means is that atonement, what you need for atonement is atonement. The means of atonement is atonement. Atonement. Now, atonement comes with various theories and motifs. And one great way of really thinking about this word, because it's really a packed word, is almost to think of it as a diamond with different facets. 
In fact, uh, what I'm going to do is just sort of present to you these different motifs of atonement and, and sort of what this kind of looks like. And so you see there's things like ransom, redemption, propitiation, expiation, sanctification, the moral example, reconciliation, to purify, to cleanse. All of these are motifs or theories of this one word, atonement. But really, the part of this, uh, of this atonement aspect, the, the facet of atonement that people have a hard time wrestling with, that people have a hard time actually sitting down with, that it's, it's hard to swallow, that we push against it, is this part, the penal substitution aspect. Penal substitution. Penal substitution, meaning that Jesus didn't in some ambiguous way die for our sins, but that there was actually a penalty there, a penal element to the cross. I think there's no other passage probably puts it more clearly than Isaiah chapter 53. Look what it says. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore up our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so this concept has actually caused many people to uh, really uh, ask themselves, uh, is this God a God that I can follow? Is this God a God that I can believe in? And in fact, this is interesting because some of the most extreme and maybe influential atheists have taken this concept and, and caricatured God and really has presented God in a way that seems to be baffling. For example, Professor Richard Dawkins, an atheist biologist who wrote a book on the God delusion, he was giving his thoughts on how he views the Christian version of God. And I want you to just listen to him and watch him. We have a video clip of how he describes this Christian God. The, the best candidate, I suppose, for strident in the God delusion, maybe the only one, is the opening two sentences of chapter two. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> So, those are some strong, descriptive words that I think for any person, they'd have to probably sit back for a second and be like, wait a minute, let me process what was just said. And so, this morning, what I want to do is I kind of want to take this in three sections. Is that okay? And so, what I want to do is I want to uh, look at the question and then I want to look at the question behind the question. And then I want to look at the question behind the question behind the question. Is that okay? So the three points, the question, the question behind the question, and then the question behind the question behind the question. So the question, is God a cosmic child abuser? The fact that the father will require the blood sacrifice of his son, isn't that child cosmic, uh, cosmic child abuse? Now, now, when people ask this question, uh, they are usually mistaken by the identity of Jesus and the nature of his sacrifice. The identity of Jesus and the nature of his sacrifice. So this morning is going to be very much teaching versus preaching, all right? So, okay, one person excited, great. 
Now might be a good time to get a second cup of coffee, and that's okay. The identity of Jesus, and the identity of Jesus is that even though Jesus is truly human, he wasn't just merely human. Even though Jesus was truly human, he wasn't just merely human. He is the second person in the Trinity, which means as the second person, he is the son, but that does not mean he is not God. He is also God. In other words, God sent himself as the second person of the Trinity who identifies as the son, but it's not as though Jesus was not God. Now, I know this can be a very theologically dense topic, and for all of you theological nerds, we could probably spend several hours just chatting about this fact. But for those who might wrestle with the concept of the Trinity and, and, and trying to figure out sort of, you know, the truth claims of that, let me just present to you the argument that I believe was first put forward by Augustine, which is this. If love is the highest ethic, and if God is the greatest conceivable being, and if God is love, so if love is the highest ethic, which it is, and if God is the greatest conceivable being, which he is, and if God is love, which he is, then that means at no point could God have not had the attribute of love. It's not as though at one point God didn't have love and then at another point he did. Okay? Now, if that's true, and if God doesn't just eternally exist, but eternally existed, then that means his love doesn't just eternally exist, but eternally existed. Which begs the question, before he created anything, any other being, who was he loving? Who was he loving? Because in order for love to be actualized, love has to be between persons. And so the answer is the Trinity, him. In other words, to clear it up, God is Trinity, Trinity is God. But if you eliminate the reality of the Trinity, then you eliminate the reality of love. Which means whatever being you might be worshiping, that being isn't God because that being is no longer the greatest conceivable of all beings. Do you see? So one answer to the question, well, isn't God just a cosmic child uh, uh, abusing God? is no, because Jesus is God. This is why John says in chapter eight, uh, when Jesus is there and, and, and he's making these claims about who he is, and he says, well, listen, Jesus says, before Abraham was, he says, I am, I am. The very, the very title that God gave Moses with the burning bush. In fact, Jesus' listeners knew exactly what he was claiming, and they picked up stones to kill him because of the blasphemy that they felt that was coming out of Jesus' mouth. See, Jesus was not just saying he's a mere messenger or a teacher, or he wasn't even saying he's a prophet pointing to God. He, he didn't say, let me lead you to God. He said, you're looking at him. Oh, and that's a very... Outrageous claim to make indeed, yeah. you see. This is also why Paul can write in Colossians 1, this chapter, 5, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus did the creating of the universe. Well, in order for Jesus to have done the creating of the universe, he had to be there in the beginning. And this is why John opens up his, his book with that, doesn't he? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that had been made. And then in verse 14, John says, and that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So first of all, to understand this question is to, in order for the question to really make sense, then what that means is that Jesus had to be human and nothing else. But remember, Jesus was truly human, but he wasn't just merely human. The second reality of this question is, unlike child abuse, God did not force Jesus to go to the cross, but Jesus voluntarily went for the joy that was set before him. So remember, when they ask this, and somebody asks this, usually there's a confusion on his identity, and there's a confusion on his sacrifice. Philippians chapter 2, 7 through 8 says this, rather he made himself nothing. He did it himself by taking up the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see that? Or when Jesus talks about how he's going to uh, lay his life down, look what he says in John 18. He says, no one takes it from me. This is not God the Father coming in and, and, and forcing something onto Jesus or, or, or taking something away from him. He says, but I lay down my own, I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Which means that God did not inflict this pain on Jesus. Rather, Jesus chose to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. This was an act of love motivated by mercy and grounded in grace. In other words, when God says the penalty of sin must be paid, simultaneously he raises his own hand and says, and I'll pay it. But see, really, this question is a surface-level question. Because even with those answers, there might still be something within you that still doesn't quite sit right. And that's because there's not just the question, but there's the question behind the question. Point two. We're doing good so far? Yeah. All right, you guys are quiet, so let me know. Question behind the question. Well, Okay, I get it, but why did Jesus have to die? Like, couldn't God have done it another way, right? I mean, couldn't God have, you know, I don't know, you know, snapped his fingers and just erased it all or something, right? That, couldn't he have? Now, people who ask this type of question usually don't understand who God is and don't understand who we are. Don't understand who God is and don't understand who we are. And really the heart of it is they don't understand what sin has done. See, most people, if they admit their sin, if they admit there is such thing as sin, in fact, society today will say that the only sin is to say that there is sin, which of course is contradictory. But if they do admit to such thing as sin, most people think of it as jaywalking, right? Well, it's not that, we're not that bad. Is it really that big of a deal? So sin gets minimalized and self-righteousness gets magnified. And, we, we, and if we admit to sin, then some in our culture kind of see sin as breaking these set of rules, when in reality, it's not so much about breaking God's rules, but breaking his heart. Breaking his heart. You'll see it. See, there's a difference, right? If, uh, if I were to, uh, I don't know, uh, be talking to a person at a grocery store or um, in McDonald's or Starbucks or something, and, and, and maybe they're helping me take my order, and, and through our conversation, you know, they, something went wrong or whatever, and, 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 and I find out, oh, they lied. They lied to me. Okay. Well, I might get a little upset, right? Um, 
But, you know, interesting. But let's just say, um, let's just say a friend. A friend lied to me. That's a little more serious, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what if, you know, a mentor lied to me? Well, that feels a little more serious, right? What if I find out my spouse lied to me? See, in each situation, even though it's the same act, the relationship makes a difference. And so when we think about sin as breaking rules, we misunderstand who God is and who we are. See, at the cross, we see the worst that sin can do, which is to crucify the Lord. But at the cross, we also see the most that sin can do. Because sin cannot stop God's salvation. So at the cross, we see the most, the worst that sin can do, and we see the most that sin can do. And what we need to understand is sin is so destructive that Tim Keller put it this way. He said You're, that, that, that sin is the most destructive thing in your life right now. And it's also what you're most defensive about. It's also what we're most defensive about. And so this idea of having to do, have a blood sacrifice of an innocent person doesn't sit right with us because we don't understand the depravity and depth of what sin has done and how it has corrupted the relationship that we have with our Lord. In fact, listen to how this progressive, what he calls himself a panentheist, Richard Rahr says it this way. Why would God need a blood sacrifice before God could love what God has created? Is God that needy, unloving, rule-bound, and unforgiving? Once you say it, you see it creates a nonsensical theological notion that this is a very, that is very hard to defend. What would God ask of me if God demands violent blood sacrifice from God's only son? A violent theory of redemption legit, uh, uh, what is, legitimated punitive and violent problem solving all the way down from papacy to parenting. If God uses and needs violence to attain God's purpose, maybe Jesus didn't really mean what he said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the gentle, the merciful, the peacemakers. Now, again, these are strong words, but their bark is much more worse than their bite. Because this makes for great clickbait, this makes for a great 10 second soundbite, but once you actually begin to look at what he is saying, you realize that the, from the very first sentence, he sets up a straw man argument. He says, why would God need a blood sacrifice before he could love the world? And of course, the answer is he doesn't. He doesn't. The doctrine of atonement is that God so loved the world that he gave. Do, do you see that? It's his love that motivates the atoning sacrifice, not the other way around. So understanding that point, then the rest of his argument self-destructs. See, what the cross does is the cross demonstrates both God's hate for sin and the extent of his love for us, that he would suffer willingly this way but also God's holiness and justice demands punishment. You say, well, this doesn't feel like justice. It seems like further injustice being piled on to a really bad situation. And so if God wanted to forgive us, why didn't he just forgive us? Well, God doesn't want to just forgive you. He wants to do something greater. 
God doesn't want to just forgive you. He wants to do something greater, right? There's a difference between somebody that did something to me and I say, okay, I forgive you, and then they walk away, right? Compared to, no, no, I want to do more than just forgive them. I want to have a relationship with this individual. And so not only is it, well, the reason why God doesn't just forgive is because he doesn't only want to forgive. He wants to forgive, but he wants to do something greater than forgiving. Furthermore, if God were to just simply blink at sin, then it would mean that he is not perfectly just, which is just as essential to his nature as his other attributes, you see. So some way there needed to be a place where you could both see the love of God and the justice of God both being expressed without compromising either of them. Do you see that? What do you, how, how is it possible that, that, that justice demands penalty for sin, but love demands mercy and grace? Well, how do you get both of those without compromising either of them? And the only place throughout all of human history that you'll find that is the cross. The only place you'll see that is Jesus hanging on the hill of Golgotha, you see. My goodness. So God would not be perfectly loving if he was not perfectly just. Do you see that? And God would not perfect, be perfectly just if he did not exact the demands of justice. But out of love, he does not exact those demands of justice from our hands, but his own. Do you see? Okay, the, but, but the mechanism of the cross, you say, how does that actually do anything? And this is where... Um, Finances and financial terminology might be helpful. So let's just say I owed a lot of money. And so let's just say I, you know, owed, you know, Gerald $10,000, okay? And, um, and so I have this debt that needs to be paid. And so a really good friend of mine comes along, we're talking and, and he's like, you know what? Uh, Roger, listen, let me take your debt and I'm just going to put it on my credit card. I'll pay it for you. That's awesome, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't you love somebody to come up with their credit card and said, hey, let me just pay all your debt for you, <laughs> right? That's wonderful, but the reality is, is that so, I, so now I'm forgiven of that debt in the sense of it's, it's, it, it's been taken care of, but has it been taken care of? No, the debt was just consolidated. All it did was put the other person in further debt. D do you see that? The debt actually isn't dealt with. It's just moved around. And if our debt is sin and death, how do you actually deal with that? Well, the only way to deal with that is for somebody to come in that is not guilty but is innocent. Do, do you see that? And the only person that could possibly be innocent is Jesus Christ, because every human is guilty. You say, but why did it have to be this most excruciating, public, nakedly and socially shameful, torturous, demeaning, grotesque way to die? Why couldn't it have been, why, why couldn't have God have made it to where all the prophets prophesied this kind of death that maybe, you know, uh, I don't know, Jesus was sort of put to sleep and then he died in his sleep. Why couldn't it have said that? Couldn't have that have done it? There's death. Why did it have to be this excruciating, shameful, demeaning, absolutely grotesque way to die? But see, when you understand the depravity and utter evil of sin, then you understand why Jesus had to go to the very depths of humanity, suffering physically, mentally, and spiritually. And that's why memes like this one that we're going to put up 
right? You guys see that? Jesus died for our sins. Okay. He didn't stay dead, right? So what exactly did he sacrifice? It says Jesus gave up his weekend for your sins. This shows a complete and utter ignorance of what went on during the crucifixion. It shows a complete and utter ignorance of the wrath that was poured upon Jesus. And that actually leads to the question behind the question behind the question. And this is where we really get down to the heart of the matter. It's that point, that picture of a loving God that also is wrathful. See, the problem is the reason God expresses righteousness and just wrath is because of his love for us. He hates how sin corrupted us, and the reason he hates how sin corrupted us is because of how much he loves us. And so if the person says, well, listen, why do, how is it that a good and loving God could also be wrathful? In other words, most people want this God that has no appearance of wrath at all. That's what, we, that's what we're comfortable with. That's what we want. That's the kind of God we want to follow, right? A God of no wrath. But see, by asking for a God that has no wrath, you're asking for a God that is indifferent, that could care less about what happens to us. See, our real problem with wrath is that we don't want God to be the judge. Oh, oh we want justice, right? But what we really want is for us to be the judge. I want to be the judge. You want to be the judge. And the real reason, reason we want to be the judge is so we can pass judgment on others without others passing judgment on us. Do, do you see that? Because we want, because ultimately, we want to self-justify ourselves. We don't want to be held to a standard that we don't agree is right. That we have a problem with, that we're offended by, you see. And what's interesting is this has made its way into the American culture, into our mindset. It has, it has rooted its way to where it, 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 we, we don't even see how it functions until it's been illuminated. It's just, it, it's that rooted into our culture. This, this is what I mean. Um, if, if, if we were to talk about something that you feel is right or wrong, right? <clears throat> and so, and something that I feel is right or wrong. <clears throat> so let's just look at culture and let's just say, um, culture says, uh, oh, sex, Whoever you want. You don't have to be married. No, whoever you want. Doesn't matter, right? It's fine. Well, okay. What does that do with the culture that we have here in America? And one apologist put it this way. He said, listen, there's really only three kinds of culture that are realistically expressed. One is a, th is a theonomous culture. Theos meaning God, nomos meaning law. So a theonomous culture is where God dictates what is right and wrong, the law, within the human heart, and that human heart is then operates by that law. Now here in America, is that the kind of culture that we stand for? Is that the kind of culture that we want where God dictates the law and we live according to that law? Is that, is that American's culture? Well, no. No. Okay. Well, the other culture is a heteronymous culture. In other words, there's, a, there's one person or maybe a handful, but kind of a handful of people from the top and this handful of people from the top dictate for the masses, right? So Islam is a religiously heteronymous culture. Marxism is a politically heteronymous culture, right? Where you get this small sort of handful of, uh, of people at the top dictating for the masses. Now, is that the culture that we strive for here in America? No, no, that's not, that's not, that's not what we strive for. Well, then there's only one left. 
which is an autonomous culture. Autonomous culture mean, meaning self, self-law. And, and where we individually give ourselves the privilege of conscience on right and wrong. Now, does that sound like a culture in which America is proposing and standing up for? Oh, yeah, that's it, that's it. Okay, so theonomous culture, one where God says what to do. Uh, heteronomous culture where there's a small group of people that tells the masses kind of what to do, right? Um, in, in other words, this is where one, one person has the right to tell another person what to do. Or autonomous culture where you tell yourself what's right or wrong. Okay, well, let's press that on this idea that, oh, you don't need to be married. You can just have sex with whoever you want. And so if you come to me and you say, no, listen, Roger, you don't need to be married. You can have sex with, with whoever you want. And, and you're wanting there to be an autonomous culture. You're wanting to make that decision for yourself. If I don't agree with you, will you give me the same freedom to my autonomy that you demand for yours? Or will you automatically convert to having a heteronomous culture? And now you want me to believe what you believe. Do you see how it doesn't work? See, we want to be the judge. We want to be our own individual judge. And we don't want anybody else to be able to judge us. And the real reason for that is because somewhere inside we feel like we really know what's right and wrong. And the real reason for that is because somewhere inside we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to be wrong. And so we don't mind judgment as long as we're not the ones that are being judged. As long as we get to do the judging. You see? And so then what we do is, is, is we begin to create in our mind an aspect of a God that sort of fits more into, you know, uh, uh, something that's more palatable to our tastes, to our conscience, to what we agree to. And so, because there's this deep ingratitude, a deep sense of entitlement, a deep understanding that actually, if God exists, he owes me. Because we hate the idea of a God that we cannot master, and yet that is our master. We don't like that. And so we create a version of God that fits within the parameters of how we think God should react and how we think God should think and, and, and that never contradicts our sensitivities and, and our ideas. And so you read passages in the Bible and you say, well, I don't really think that God would do that. And so I, and I'm not, I, I can't follow that kind of a God. And so we create our own versions of God. And the very fact that you have a created God that you can master shows that you hate a God that you can't. And so one of the reasons you look at the cross and say, well, I refuse to serve a God that would do that. What you're actually doing is you're, is you're saying, I want to believe in a different God. But by doing that, you're refusing to believe in a God of love. See, the price for, for, for diluting God's wrath is that you diminish and cheapen his love. Because Jesus didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. Jesus didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. Going back to the passage that we opened up with, just focusing on verse 11. It says this, so Peter just cut off the ear of the soldier and Jesus commands Peter. He says, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? In other words, God has warranted wrath for our unwarranted wrath. But it's the idea that not just that there's a cup and not just that there's a cup of God, this cup of wrath. It's not just the idea that there's a cup and that there's a cup of God. That would be one thing. But Jesus specifically says it's a cup of the Father. What does Father mean 
in the book of John? Well, what does father mean in general? What does Jesus mean when he calls God Father? He's talking about his love. He's talking about his affection. He's talking about his patience. And you say, well, how can these two things go together? If he's really a loving God, a father, then then there shouldn't be a cup. That's what we say. But yet, here it is. Because Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. He is both. By using the term cup of the father, he's telling Peter And he's telling you and he's telling me what happened on the cross. That on the cross, he drank the cup of the Father. And if you don't understand that, then you'll never understand his love. And if you don't understand how much he loves you, you'll never really be transformed by the truth of the gospel. See? I've had many people tell me over the years... Well, listen, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell, which of course, as we've learned, that's actually not true. It's not, it's not that he drags people unwillingly against their will into this pit of you know, fire and torment. I don't believe in a God of wrath, they say. I don't believe that God's wrath was on, was on all of us And then he poured it on Jesus. But rather, you know, I think he just loves people. Now, when you say that, then the next question is, well, do you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, they'll say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, then what was the point of the cross? What was the point of the cross? Oh, well, uh, the point of the cross was, you know, to, to... telling me that, you know, he loves me. Well, yes, but I mean, if me and a friend were standing around a bonfire and all of a sudden their friend was like, let me just show you how much I love you, bro. And he just ran and threw his body in, the bon- in, this, in, in this bonfire and started just burning himself and he just died. If that really happened, I'd be like, what in the world? Ju- like, how did that show love? Right? <laughs> no, no. The punishment, the penal substitutionary aspect, the wrath being poured out is what makes the difference, you see. It what makes the difference between Jesus being crucified on the cross and the hundreds of other people that were crucified on the cross. Because what happened on the cross was significantly different. It was the wrath of God being poured out it was it it, it was Christ taking on eternal punishment all being condensed into the into this allotted time and, and, and point in history you see on the cross he said father forgive them on the cross he said it is finished what was he doing he was drinking the cup he was drinking the cup of the father The cross shows how God can love us and be absolutely just at the same time. And that's the God we need. We need that God. The cup of the Father means he's equally just and equally loving. Only if you see Jesus taking the wrath of God will you really understand his love. You see. And when you understand his love, and this is probably the craziest thing, is that when you, when you choose God, what you actually find out is that he chose you. When you run after him, what you find out is he's been running after you. He chose you. And what's crazy is he'd do it again. He chose you and he'd do it again. If he had to do it all over again, he absolutely would. Because if you claim to be a child of God, he chose you, you see. And he'd do it again. And he chooses you tomorrow. And he chooses you next week. And he'll choose you a month from now. And he'll choose you a year from now. And he'll choose you a hundred years from now. And he'll choose you a thousand years from now. Do do, do you see what that is? Your your sin does not scare away God from choosing you. Do, Do you see that? 
In your mistakes, he chooses you. In your pain, he chooses you. In your rebellion, he chooses you. He, he chooses you. And he'll do it throughout all eternity. The atonement, the blood of the cross was an act motivated by love. And when you see that beauty, then you can't do anything but respond in gratitude. Would you stand to your feet? Listen, in all of these topics that we've talked about over the last few weeks, there's no way that we can fully articulate and break down every point in each subject and in each argument. But what I'm hoping has happened is that for those of you who are really sort of wrestling through that you have been given some things to really think about, some points to really consider, some things to allow your mind and your heart to come together and recognize that even though you might have deep questions, there are real answers. And that through it all, Jesus Christ has chosen you, amen. Father, I just pray, Lord God, that um, you will be glorified. I pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, we will be in a space, Heavenly Father, where uh, we will begin to see uh, ways in which we try to conform you, ways in which we try to dethrone you, ways in which we desire to be our own judge, God. But with the reality that we can't even hold up to our own standards. And so we repent of those moments, God, and we come before you and we want to see, Heavenly Father, the, the ugliness and yet the beauty of the cross. And far from being a cosmic child abuser, you are a father of unlimited love. And we thank you for your wrath. We thank you that you do not just dismiss us, that you do not stand afar, Heavenly Father, and not care but Lord, that you cared so much that you came and you entered in to the deepest form of human suffering, of mental suffering, of spiritual suffering for us. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Have a good day, everybody. We love you. God bless. See you next week. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.